Hello, welcome to our latest program in the AC4 series of radio programs on conflict resolution at Columbia University. AC4 is a consortium that stands for the Advanced Consortium for Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at Columbia University. My name is Beth Fisher Yoshida, and I am a co chair of AC4 with Peter Coleman. Peter Coleman is faculty at Teachers College, Columbia University, and the Earth Institute. And besides being co-chair of AC4, I also am academic director and faculty in the master's program on negotiation and conflict resolution. Today we're going to be interviewing Robert Ferguson, who is a psychologist. He is also an instructor at the ICCCR, which is the International Center for Cooperation, Conflict, and Resolution at Teachers College. And he also does executive coaching in organizations. And today we're going to be speaking about Robert's course on power and conflict and other work in the area that he does in conflict, conflict resolution, and power. So, Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. It's good to be here. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add to your bio that I didn't touch upon at this time? Um, Dr. Coleman and I are working on a book on the topic of power and conflict, which we expect to come out in 2014. So we're quite excited about that. Do you have a title for the book? We don't have a title yet. It's still a work in progress. We're, we're thick into the writing now, and we don't have a title yet. Very good. But at the ICCCR website, I'm sure that we'll be promoting the book. Yeah, there'll be plenty of information for listeners. Good. Well, let's get started. And I'd like to ask you then, how did you become interested in the topic of power and conflict? Well, it, it sort of evolved over the years, uh, but then it culminated in a couple of um, specific events. Uh, Dr. Coleman and I have known each other for years, and we stayed in touch uh, regarding our careers. And uh, a few years ago, we were having dinner, and he told me the story about when the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution was doing a, a conflict resolution program at the United Nations, which is a very hierarchical organization. And what they found is that there was plenty to teach about conflict resolution when it was between equals, two people who work together and are considered equals. But that the program had limitations, and they got some pretty tough feedback about the question, well, what happens if you disagree with your boss? And, and traditional conflict resolution methods uh, didn't work, so they had to redesign the program. Around the same time, I was doing a lot of conflict resolution workshops in organizations, and I was running into the same problem. I, I could help people on teams, but then ultimately the question would come up, but my boss doesn't want me to disagree with him or her. What do I do about that? And I, I realized I didn't really have uh, very adequate answers. So Peter Coleman and I were talking, and we decided to um, uh, do some more work on this. And he had been researching power and conflict for years, uh, following in the footsteps of Morton Deutsch. So we decided to um, devise uh, or design a class for Teachers College. And from there, we just kept uh, building until we were writing this book as well. Very good. So you're talking about really when there's an asymmetrical power imbalance there yes. that people have more challenges. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good books and programs about conflict resolution. Uh, some of the popular books are crucial conversations, difficult conversations, but there's almost no mention about what to do if you're in conflict with someone who uh, could fire you or mm -hmm. affect your career. And so that's the dimension we've uh, uh, extended our research and writing into. Right. When you say Peter Coleman has been doing this for many years, I think it was a core part of his dissertation, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, well, that's right. It goes back many years. So, <laughs> right. uh, yes, he's been the he's been researching it for a long time, and it's in the last few years we decided to create programs around it. 
Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the word power, and you also mentioned organizations, and I'm wondering, what do you mean by power? Because when people hear the word power, they typically associate it with a political meaning there. Well, that, that's true. We associate power with you know, Washington, and, and of course it is applicable there, but we're not writing about politics. We're really interested in the day-to-day -day life of working in organizations like companies, schools, nonprofits, government agencies. And so uh, we, dis we have a pretty simple definition of power. We call it the ability to make things happen. Uh, and then there's really two types of power. There's formal authority. So if you're the boss, you have power. If you're the business owner, if you're the principal of a school. So that's pretty traditional authority. And that is a very, uh, uh, that's an ability to make things happen or to stop things from happening. But then there's also informal power. You might not have the title or the rank, but maybe you're the only person on a team who has the expertise in a certain kind of software, or maybe you're the only person who knows how to do a certain procedure, or maybe you're very good at building relationships, or maybe you're just phenomenal at communication. There are other ways to gain power in an organization where it, it doesn't show up on the org chart. And so those are also forms of power or influence that, that we teach in our course. So it sounds like from your description that there's a lot more opportunity in the informal areas of power to be creative and sort of utilize what that is. Because in the formal way of power, it really is sort of positional inside of an organization? Or right. It's, it's, posi it's positional, but we always say that, you know, your title uh, gives you a lot of power, but it also gives you opportunities to squander power or to misuse it. So I would say that if you are an authority figure, if you're a boss or a business owner, or an executive, uh, you know, your title will get people listening to you, and a lot of people will probably uh, comply with what you say, but you'll have a lot more power if you combine your title with these other skills, these informal uh, types of influence. It's, okay. it's the combination that would make you mm -hmm. most effective. Mm -hmm. So it really is a way also then of rethinking what does your title mean and to use your title in the best way possible in an organization. Yes, both in terms of if you have the title like, you know, you're, you're sort of at the, at the top of the pyramid, how can you combine other skills to be even more effective when people disagree with you? But also, what if your title is, you know, the assistant to the assistant? Mm -hmm. If you're in a low power position, you're a middle manager or lower manager or you're not a manager at all, uh, we want to give people other ways of thinking about how they can accomplish their individual career goals as well as the goals of the organization. Our philosophy is, uh, I don't want to say nobody is powerless, but most people have opportunities to gain more power in an organization than they first think. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, it really does expand the whole meaning of power and how we utilize it. Yes, we, we want people to think in a more fluid and expansive way about power because, well, as you said before, usually when you first hear the word power, you think politics, Washington. Um, and then in the organization, most people think power equals the boss. While that's not untrue, it's incomplete. We want mm -hmm. to expand people's thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Good. So I know that recently you just completed a course teaching here at uh, Columbia University around power and conflict. Can you tell us a little bit about the course? Yes, I teach the course uh, with Dr. Katarina Kugler, who's one of the main researchers at the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. The course was designed by Dr. Kugler, Dr. Coleman, and I, and it's an academic course offered every summer for a weekend. Uh, it's for the master's students in at Teachers College, but other people sometimes take the course or audit it. And it's, uh, it's academic and practical. We've tried to not only 
uh, articulate a theory of power and conflict, but we want people to be able to go right back to work the next day and, and, and be more effective. From that course, we've, uh, we, we are currently revising it to fit the business world and the organization world. So in addition to the academic course that we teach at Teachers College, we're going to offer it as an executive education seminar in October for, uh, as I said, people from all types of organizations. Mm -hmm. And that one will be uh, very pragmatic, much less, very little academics, but it's a how-to course, how to go back to your organization and navigate conflicts when power is unequal in a much more effective way. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like uh, that you're, you and Peter have a nice combination there because one of the founding principles of the ICCCR and also what we're doing in AC4 is really combining research, theory, and practice. And it sounds like you're being able to expand the research program, but at the same time also expanding the practical part. Yes, that's well said. That's what we want to do. Uh, one reason Peter Coleman and I decided to write a book together is because he's uh, very focused on, on research and academics, and my career is really the day-to-day -day life of organizations. I'm in organizations nearly every day helping teams, managers, executive, business owners navigate conflicts, uh, be more effective leaders, and so you might say I'm in the trenches, and so we wanted to combine those two perspectives, the academic and the everyday uh, uh practical work into this book and this seminar. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned earlier that you're actually a psychologist, so your training yes. is in psychology. So I'm curious, let's take a step, I don't know how far back in time, but how did you become interested in working in conflict and working in organizations? Well, um, it's partly because for most of my psychology career, uh, part of what I've done is to help couples in marriage. And when you do marriage therapy, you've got to get comfortable with conflict. <laughs> uh, it can be pretty intense conflict. Now, it's different than the conflict in organizations because, you know, it's about an emotional relationship and a very deep attachment. But I uh, was very influenced by the, the research and the writing of Dr. John Gottman, <clears throat> who wrote about conflict in marriage. And his work was very influential in um, some of the researchers that followed him applying some of his research methods on conflict to conflicts in the world of work. So it evolved over time as I went from uh, a lot of marriage counseling to consulting to organizations, I could see that there were some basic fundamental principles of conflict that could apply to both uh, close relationships like marriages, but also uh, uh, relationships in the workplace. And so now I, I do both and um, much more work in organizations in the last 10 years. Oh, so do you still work with couples also? Yes, I still do some of that, and I like the variety because it's all about, you know, conflict is universal because at its core, conflict is about can two or more people be honest when they need each other? So two spouses need each other, but it's kind of hard to be honest because you're going to hurt feelings, you're going to stimulate anger, and so if a couple can get comfortable with conflict. And when I say conflict, we're not talking about screaming. Obviously screaming and and the intense forms of conflict, obviously those do qualify as conflict. But most human conflict, especially in uh, families and in the world of work, is not about screaming. It's not about intensity. It's about two people having a different perspective or a different opinion and what are they going to do about that difference. So there are, you know, if, you, if any two or more human beings who need each other 
and who disagree have to do some conflict. And so we're applying those principles, I apply those principles in the various dimensions of my career. So it brings up a couple of thoughts to me. One is that um, this talks very much about Morton Deutsch. You mentioned earlier Morton Deutsch's yes. work on interdependence. So as long mm -hmm. as there's a relationship and as long as there's an interest in the relationship, then there's a need to be able to better, more constructively manage any kind of yes. conflict that emerges in that relationship. Yes. Conflict is about interdependence. Do, do we need each other in some way to achieve our goals? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that it triggers for me is uh, looking at things systemically. Because I know that inside of family couples, right, you have married mm -hmm. couples and you have that, but it's also part of a family system. And when you mentioned then you transition to your work in organizations, sometimes people say, well, aren't organizations also sometimes like families? Yes and no, I can see that. But then if we look at things systemically, there's also the whole area of family systems and applying that whole systemic approach because even when you talked about conflict and power in an organization, power is also something that happens inside of a system. Exactly. And uh, I'm not an expert on family systems, but I do try and take a systems perspective on uh, couples I work with, small businesses, and there can be a pretty big difference between a small business that only has, you know, 10 employees, and then sometimes I work with much larger companies like Credit Suisse where it has, you know, I don't know. Thousands. A bazillion <laughs> employees. Uh, so, yeah, you have to look at the system, both the larger system and then the sort of the subsystems within it. And so, you know, it, it's but the challenge when you're talking to managers and employees is to talk about that and to help them see that without sounding like a professor. Mm. You know, right. my, my work is about making things happen effectively in, in an organization every mm -hmm. day. So do you deal with power also when you do your executive coaching? Um, absolutely. Uh, I've talked with many business owners and executives who were pretty naive about the power they had. You, you can be pretty naive and say, you know, you can own a business and have 200 employees and say, my door is always open. My employees can come and talk to me anytime they want. And then I point out that not too many people do that. I wonder why that is. And so a lot of very powerful people are naive about the power they have, and they tend to assume that everybody has the same options as them. So some of my work as an executive coach is to help some very powerful people uh, try to appreciate that the people who report to them and the people who serve them might be intimidated even if that owner is not uh, you know, a particularly intimidating person. Just power itself can intimidate people. So we offer practical strategies to help leaders with power uh, be more inviting, uh, solicit more honest comments from people. I mean, one of the dilemmas of power is if you're not getting honesty from the people who are doing the business, you're not going to make the best decisions. And when people are scared to share their, their most creative ideas or their disagreements or their candid feedback with their boss, that boss is really at a disadvantage. So part of what we do is help people in power appreciate what power means and how to not intimidate others. And then as you and I were talking before, we can help people in organizations who have less power gain some power. So can you give something a little more specific? For example, in your coaching with a client who is a powerful person, and, and then he starts to understand, oh, okay, so even though I say my door is always open, for some people, my door is not really open, because what, what what's implied by coming through that door if I say something? So a couple of things, like, so why would people be afraid, like, you know, to really be honest and be creative when actually they could be rewarded for that? And then how do you help the bosses also 
open the door in a way that really is inviting for the employee. Well, let's imagine for a minute that you're my boss. And you say to me, my door is always open. You can come and talk to me. Well, it's already implicit that I have to come to you. <laughs> through my door. Yeah, right. through your door, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and so um, you sign my paycheck. You can fire me. You can promote me. You can demote me. So even if I'm not fully conscious of all those things, I'm thinking, okay, I have this idea for improving the business, or I have a criticism of how we do business. Now, do I walk down the hall and walk through the boss's door and tell her that? She says I can, but I don't know. I'm not so sure. So if an executive coach is helping you, that executive coach might advise you, don't just leave your door open. You go to your employees. Build relationships. Um, as you said, reward them, encourage them to give ideas. And when someone gives you an idea, even if you don't use it, even if it's not the greatest idea, reward and reinforce that person for you know having the, the courage to say it. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is, again, imagining you're my boss and, and I'm your employee. You don't know what my life story is. You, you, don't, you probably don't know what I've been through. I may have had to deal with dictators in my past. I may have had to come from a um, maybe even an abusive family or controlling authority figures. So it's not just who you are. I'm bringing my whole life story to your company, and you may have to even go further to encourage me to give you my best creative ideas, my best feedback. Not that I, you have to be a psychologist to be a business owner or an executive, but you have to understand that there are both uh, visible and invisible reasons why people might not be fully honest with you. So it's not just who I am necessarily, but it's what I represent. Yes, based exactly. On your That's story. a good way to put it. It's who you represent to me, the employee. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something before. It's about leaving the office and walking around the floors and building relationships. And I found that that is something in my work as well, that relationships are so critical because that's how you have some warmth between people and understanding. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a relationship, it's just cold, and any idea just falls cold because you don't understand the bigger context of how to understand that idea. Exactly. What we teach um, both the graduate students at Teachers College and then the, the managers and executives we work with is all context, all rather all conflict is in the context of a relationship. The, any relationship building anybody does in an organization is an investment. We may be getting along wonderfully for week after week, month after month. And as we build our relationship, when we run into a conflict somewhere down the road, if we already like and trust each other, or at least respect each other and can talk to each other, that's where we're going to come from to try and resolve that conflict. If I ignore you until the conflict emerges, you're just this stranger that now I have to deal with and the conflict's not going to go as well. So relationship building is always underlying everything else in conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. So earlier we mentioned people in uh, also low power positions, positional positions, and recently we are just talking about like what the boss can do, somebody in a high power position. So uh, continuing along the line of being very practical, what are some things you teach or would teach to people in lower power positions that would help create the opportunity and would also help them sort of share the ideas mm -hmm. that they have in a way that will be best received? Um, that's a good question because that's some of the most practical work we do. Uh, a few years ago, I worked with a woman in a manufacturing firm who was working at a site with about 200 employees. and. Uh, she was responsible for some of the HR duties and some of the financial reporting. And when she got a new boss, a new site leader, she was kind of shocked because her former one was a pretty nice person who included her in a lot of decisions. Her new boss was, 
you know, not very far short of a dictator. And it was really hard for her to adjust, and she thought about quitting the organization. But she'd been there for like 25 years, and she said, I've got too much time invested in this. I need to find a way to work with this new boss, and, you know, it'll probably take two or three years to get a different job within this organization. So what I helped her learn was that although she appears to be powerless in the face of this dictator, there's probably some things she could do where she made her boss more dependent on her. So first thing she realized was that she's much better at numbers and financial reporting than him. And so over time, she helped him see that even though he has more position power, he needs her to do very good reports for his boss. And so she sort of you know, shaped his thinking and his behavior over time to realize that he was more dependent on her, and he sort of softened over time. He was, he was, he was actually even rude in the beginning, but when, as he realized that he depended on her more, he, um, he softened some. And then another thing she did was she became, I, I think I mentioned before, that, you know, one way to increase your power in an organization is to um, become an expert on something. And as the organization introduced uh, new technology and new software, she always made sure that she was the first person on site to be the ultimate expert on that, which means a lot of people had to come to her, including her dictator boss, to get things done. So although she never changed her position power, in the, I forget, I think about two years that she worked for this person, she gained informal power so that he couldn't be quite as... uh, rude and pushy as he would probably otherwise like to be. And she was very strategic about how she gained this informal power. So it's not the same as getting promoted and being able to boss around your boss, but there are these informal, subtle forms of power that uh, can help you manage disagreements with a a sort of a dictator boss, so that boss is probably not quite as bad. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, you're describing somebody who was very invested in the company, invested in her role, uh, took initiative to do something different from what she had done before, and also to uh, self-validate what she is worth and also to get others to validate her as well, because you said she did have 25 years in the organization. Well, that's a good point. Um, Gaining power not only helped her achieve her career goals, which was to stay in the organization until she could you know, work for somebody else, and she succeeded. Um, But there's a psychological dimension. Uh, One phrase we use in our teaching sometimes is powerlessness corrupts. Everybody knows that power corrupts, but powerlessness corrupts as well. When people believe they're powerless, whether they actually are powerless or not, it's bad for self-esteem, it's bad for how you view yourself, and it's more likely to lead to even clinical problems like depression or anxiety. And so I think when people in low power figure out these subtle strategies for um, gaining some informal power in their organization, it not only helps their career, but you just feel better driving home at night. Mm -hmm. You you realize, okay, my situation isn't ideal, but I have some options here, and I can do this for, I can can live through this and Mm -hmm. get something. So yeah, there is a psychological payoff for realizing you're not as powerless as you think you are. Mm-hmm. And then you bring that home with you as well. So you bring which attitude home? Right. Well, we can only wonder what happens in the homes and families of people who, um, well, we don't have to wonder. We know that it's it's not so nice. If you come home feeling beat up and powerlessness or powerless and upset about work, you're more likely to kick the dog 
mm-hmm. or be harsh to your kids or your spouse. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of a ripple effect mm-hmm. um, based on what happens at work. The other thing you alluded to is about change and change in organizations. And you said, so when she had a new boss, so now we have a shift, we have a change happening, which really is a window of opportunity for lots of different things to happen. And it sounds like those are windows of opportunity for power as well, because power starts to move around. So the new boss comes in and maybe asserts himself in a certain way because he wants to grab the power and and gain his authority. Other people say, oh, this could be my chance. And so there's a lot of things happening. Do you work with that at all in organizations around change and power? I do. Um, And just as you say, I, I, I often encounter people who see the change as a threat or as, you know, now my job is intolerable. And while I want to validate the emotions of, of especially a, a sort of a harsh change where a new boss comes in and it's very difficult, I do try and help people see this as an opportunity, not the ideal opportunity, uh, but something that probably has more options than you think. You know, most people have a hard time with any change, even if it's pretty positive. We all get kind of accustomed to our routine and... and uh, you know, if we like it, we don't want it to change. So any change can be stressful, but it's especially stressful if the change is, you know, the new boss is a dictator. So we do try and help people see it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice that uh, you're helping people expand their point of view about things and realizing that there are choices and that they have a lot more agency or self-control or self-assertion in those situations. Yes, that's one of the main goals in both our academic course, the executive education uh, this October, and in our book is to help people, especially people with low power, see that they have more options for power. And then, you know, parallel to that, we try and help people with high power see that they probably have more options than they think, too, because a lot of people in high power just rest on their position, and they think they can get things done simply because they're the boss. And that just doesn't work as well as as they think. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Can you say a little bit more about your book? You've mentioned the book a couple of times, and I know we don't have a title yet, but I know it is on power and conflict, but is it... Uh, very theoretical, very practical. No, it's definitely a trade book. It's written for a mass audience, people in organizations. We say anybody in an organization from the janitor to the CEO is going to um, uh, benefit from our book because it's, it's it, yes, it's a book about leadership, but it's not just a book for high-power leaders. It's a book for people beco- you know, achieving their goals at work. So it's going to be published in 2014 by Hote Mifflin Harcourt. We're in the process of, of writing it now. And... Um, it's not a theoretical book. There, it, you know, it, it's grounded in theory, but it's, you know, there's, our academic books are, are very different than, than this trade book. This is a how-to book for achieving your goals in an organization when people disagree with each other and power is unequal. Very pragmatic. That's our goal. That sounds great. So if people can't wait for that, then we know you have your executive education workshop happening in October, October 17th and 18th. Yes, October 17th and 18th. um, We're doing a two-day executive education seminar. We're calling it conflict intelligence because, you know, that's sort of our umbrella term for skills at dealing with any sort of conflict in the workplace. And, of course, our emphasis is on when power is unequal. So if anybody wants to know more about that um, uh, two-day executive education seminar, we have a website. You can go to www.conflictintelligence.org and learn more about it. Oh, that sounds great. There's so many different kinds of intelligences, and now we have conflict intelligence. Right, emotional intelligence, and now Mm -hmm. conflict intelligence. Yeah, we're Mm -hmm. sort of in that line. 
That's great. So uh, anything else you want to add, Rob, before we sort of bring things to a close here? Um, you know, I can't really think of anything else. We, you know, we're, our, our motive is to help people because, you know, you probably spend more time at work than you spend with your family. And you probably spend more time with your colleagues and your boss than your kids, or at least, you know, many people do. And so even though, you know, work is not about love and attachment the way family life is, it has a big impact on how people feel about their life. And, and, um, and as you were alluding to before, it does affect marriages and families. So we want to help people find a way to get the work done, pursue their careers, uh, and face the inevitable disagreements that come at work uh, in a way that's uh, you know, more effective than just giving in to the boss or being the boss and controlling your employees. Great. Thank you so much. So thank you for listening. This is Beth Fisher Yoshida, co-chair of AC4 at Columbia University, interviewing Robert Ferguson, psychologist on the topic of power and conflict. Thank you for listening.